0: This is the Mindbox podcast hosted by Claire Jacobs. Mindbox is a space to talk about our minds and mental health, so we cover topics that can be of a triggering or sensitive nature. We will always highlight the topics we cover in the show notes of each episode's description, so please read these before listening. Please note we're not medical experts, we're only experts of our own mental health experiences. To find out more about the pod or contact us, find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter using the name Mindvox Pod. Hi everybody, today we're going to talk about grief. I know it's a bit of a tricky one, a bit of a deep one, but I think it's a really, really important subject. I've previously spoken about it by myself in another episode, but today, thankfully, I've got with me clinical psychologist Dr. Marianne Trent, and she specialises in grief and trauma therapy, and she's also the author of The Grief Collective, amongst other books. As well as spreading messages across the media about, you know, the importance of promoting better mental health, she's also a mother to two boys, age nine and six, and Dr. Trent has come onto the pod to talk about grief in particular for young people and how it can affect them and the different stages they go through and also quite important to me personally she's going to be talking about how grief can feel and be displayed for young people with neurodivergence such as adhd and autism so this includes exploring how the loss of somebody significant can affect a child or a teenager and hopefully she'll give us some advice for how we can support them through this and also obviously the alternative ways to support young people who are neurodivergent with this loss
1: hello how are you doing hi i'm well thank you thank you so much for inviting me on
0: oh well thank you for coming because um, i'm quite nervous actually (laughs) because you know your stuff and you're a very big podcaster yourself aren't you i i do have a podcast yes it's the aspiring
1: psychologist podcast it's really thinking about getting the foundations right for people that want to go on and become qualified professionally qualified psychologists
0: that sounds really really good i guess my first question just for people that are listening is to clarify really Now, obviously, we are talking about grief in terms of the loss of somebody, the death of somebody. And for me, I wanted to really touch upon when it's a significant loss to a young person. So like a parent or someone, uh, you know, a caregiver, someone that's really a major part of their life. I suppose I wanted to start really by looking at what grief can look like. I mean, is it something that we all go through set stages? Like what is grief and, and what do we typically expect from grief in general?
1: So grief is so multifaceted. It's the first thing I'd say. And you might well have heard about the different grief stages. There's a grief stages model. Sometimes people will say five stages. Sometimes people say seven stages. And I think sometimes the grief stage models can be a little bit confusing because people might get the idea that they're supposed to go neatly from one stage to the other. So the stages will include things like... Um, you know anger disbelief you know um, and moves on to kind of assimilation but what we know is that actually the grief stages you can move through them backwards forwards you know in and out of them even within minutes you know Um, and so just sort of being aware of um, aware of the stages can be useful but to know that they're not um, they're not they're not they're not prescriptive you know um, whatever you're feeling within grief is probably within normal limits you know and that includes sometimes you know deeper darker thoughts about how am I gonna get through my life without this person or I know you mentioned people but especially with people with neurodivergence or people are living by themselves it might actually be pets or it might be significant figures to the person or the young person like a teacher or someone that you might not think would be as important as a parent but actually if they've been a stabilizing factor or if they really felt like that you know that person saw them or got them or saw that they were unique or special then it's you know potentially could be a massive loss to to the grown-up or the young person Um, so let's not be too pejorative don't assume I guess that just because it's been something that might not look so significant on the surface that that it might not matter and again the other way around sometimes when someone loses a parent or sibling for example you might think oh that's absolutely dreadful but sometimes people will say to me didn't have a close relationship it's really not connected with me and that has to be okay too so I think we can learn from thinking with people about grief in the same way as we do about pregnancy so I know before I started professionally training I probably would have automatically said oh congratulations to someone that's pregnant but what we know is that it's not always news that people are feeling is great so I will often say well you know how are you feeling about that what does that mean to you and I think the same is true with grief so if somebody says oh my dad's died and you go I'm so sorry actually you know that would suggest that you think they might have had a really close relationship but you say oh I'm sorry to hear that. How How are you finding that? What's that like for you? That means that you're freeing the person up to talk about their own experience, their own narrative, rather than assuming that they've got the same relationship that you might have with your own dad um, or, or whatever relation it is that they've mentioned. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that does. Um, I think, yeah, when I'm talking about significant loss, yeah, it is. It can be absolutely anyone that was significant to them. I think, yeah, stereotypically, you'd assume it would be family, but it isn't, like you said animals in particular I think a lot of people who don't have animals and you know they can really undermine sometimes the loss that you can feel when you lose a dog or a cat and you know it's just a it's just a dog well no because that that dog has probably played quite a key part of their life they you know have a secure attachment to them like they would another family member so I think yeah you're, you're right to sort of explain that one and I guess with the stages then, what do what's your take on stages? Do you, because like you said, there's some people say seven, some say five. Do you, when, within your work, do you see some very set stages that clearly are, what I'm guessing, not linear? So you can go up and down, you can go in and out of all the different ones. But have you seen some very common ones with all of your, your patients?
1: So in terms of grief... When I worked, um, so I used to work for the NHS as well. I used to work in an adult mental health service. I've also worked in children's mental health services as well. But actually, in terms of our, what we call their access criteria, we wouldn't tend to even pick up referrals until it'd been after six months of, of grief, unless there was a really traumatic element. But even then, you'd expect it to take a while for the dust to settle. So when someone is still feeling... Really, really flawed and not able to get their quality of life back to how it had been before the grief after six months, then we might be thinking that that's a more complex. Um, a grief relationship, and when we're looking at how it impacts on somebody, I think about the four areas as being quite useful. So when we're looking at someone's well being, you might have heard this already. When we're looking at someone's well being, we look at what their functioning is like. So how able they are to get the things done that they need to get done, or that they, you know, should be doing so are they showering or bathing are they attending to their personal hygiene as much as they ever did you know we're not not expecting perfection here are they eating or making priority to eat or you know are they drinking are they going to work are they going to school so that's the functional element sometimes we see um, there's a great deal of functionality and so people might not know there's a problem Um, But all the other areas might be really actually quite, um, quite marked. So the other areas we look at are problems. How many problems does it feel like or you have got pressing down on you and how the other area is well-being. So how does this impact on your well-being? So that might be how much hope you've got for the future, how much you're enjoying life right now how you know carefree and light you're feeling Um, and then the other fourth area and an important area is risk so how risky are you to yourself or others so what I do when I'm trying to get a feel for somebody's mental health and grief can affect your mental health absolutely it can so it's not necessarily a diagnosable condition you know you wouldn't diagnose someone with grief but you'd know the symptoms of grief I don't even know if grief is in the diagnostic manuals I presume it is I've never looked I've never looked and so I don't know but you know we're looking for how much this is impacting somebody so you might find that somebody is you know significantly impacted But able to be functional, you know, are you still able to go to work, still able to do all the things they've always done, but at what cost? That's what we often say to people. You know, their well-being is taking a real dive and their problems are really, really high. But they're almost like forcing themselves to be functional, to look like that swan, you know, serene but it's ripping them to shreds to be able to do that, to be able to portray that level of functionality. And sometimes, of course, we have to be functional. We've got to pay the bills or we've got to go to school and it's really difficult, but know that you don't need to suffer in the way that you are or the person that you're supporting doesn't need to suffer. And what we often find is what helps or what's what keeps people from moving through stages is trauma. So what we mean by trauma, is when something from then is leaking into the now and we can't necessarily control it. So we might suddenly find that we've got thoughts that feel really overwhelming and that we can't shake. We might find that we've got images, things that have happened. Or even with grief, you might find that you've got imagined images. So if you weren't with somebody when they died, you might find yourself imagining what that was like. So for example, if it was in a car crash or if they died during the pandemic, you might not have seen And that might also be incredibly haunting and can be really, really, um, you know, traumatising. So don't always think that it's something that you've seen. It might almost be. So our fantastic human brains have got this ability to imagine. They've got almost an ability to problem solve. And so when you hear facts, especially if it's stuff about um, someone completing suicide, for example, or someone involved in a car crash or something that you can imagine, our brain might take you there even though you've not actually seen any images Um, and that can feel scary. It can feel almost like you're being voyeuristic, but this is just our human brains doing, doing what they do. Um, and uh, we often with children will find that they ask questions. Um, so my dad died in 2017, tail end of, um, and I adored him. You know, I was really, really, really fond of him. Um, but at the time I had an 18 month old little boy um, and a four year old um, little boy um, coming up four and a half. And so neither of them actually remember my dad. Um, the youngest is quite sad about that, that, he, that Grampy Norm didn't get a chance to know him better. Um But children will ask different questions about grief and grieving and dying that if you're not prepared for might feel like you want to shut down. But I guess one of the first tips for talking to children about grief is just be open. Try to stay. Fact based, so try to use concrete words. And when I say concrete, I mean exact. Um, So don't use ambiguous terms like gone away passed away you know was poorly um because they can be confusing but also be scary in the future so often i'll say to my little boy you know oh no are you feeling poorly oh no you poor thing but if you've already explained that Grandpa died because he was poorly then you can quickly see that that might feel <laughs>
0: terrifying yeah, that's quite um, yeah you can't you don't always think of it like that do you but i i know that when i was reading up on it they were sort of things like yeah if you say things like they've gone to sleep they've passed away that a lot of kids can think they'll come back at some point so they look for them and you know they go searching for them in the house and that just is heartbreaking Yeah, so you, i get why you have to be very clear that they have died and that they are not coming back and yeah that, that i think's a key message um i wondered so when you talked about how sort of we typically grieve I've heard some of the stages, you know, sort of the denial, the anger, the the sadness, the acceptance at the end, if ever you get there. Um, that bit, the bit. Oh yeah, but yeah. Bit it's all all right. It's never really. I think I think what you do is you learn to accept that it's there and it will always be there, but you can start to see it. Posit- you can start to look at them positively and, and the history without so much pain. But there'll always be pain. But I guess what I I'm keen to know is, is it different for children, teenagers, or young children in the way that they process grief, or do they do it? Very similar to adults.
1: I think, um, and I often say that children have a much shorter attention span for everything, including grief, and they might get full up quite quickly. Um, So, when I was talking to um, my eldest child about the fact that Grandpa had died, we'd sort of have a a good couple of minutes talking about it, and I'd be thinking, Oh, I'm doing doing a good job here, you know. (laughs) grounding him in grief and being you know empathic and you know open to these questions that you know are slightly wild and off the wall and then he'd like take a pause and he'd be like right how does my transformer transform then and you're like ah okay we're done now but yeah like I said they get full up they get full up quickly so I would say just follow their lead and know that they will come back to you if you've left it open. So when they're ready for the next instalment, they're ready for the next bit, they'll come back to you and they might just spontaneously ask a question. And especially if people are on the spectrum or have got concentration issues um, around ADHD, that might happen a lot quicker, um, and you might find that you need to have different ways of having conversations. So it might be that you find having a notebook or even a checklist for wh- when a child gets in from school to be able to tick things that they've experienced, or you know, what's the hardest part of your day? What's the trickiest part of your day? Um, if open questions are too tricky, you could have a checklist. You know, were you sad today? You know, was there was anything upsetting for you? Um, just yes or no, so that you can get an idea. Of where to where to start, where to meet that young person, Um, because, you know, we don't want to put stuff on them. Um, And if we know they find it difficult to talk to us, then having them be able to communicate in a way that uh, makes sense for them. But sometimes it isn't that they want to communicate. Sometimes they just want you to know what what the facts are, what's happened, but they actually don't want to talk to you about it. just want that knowledge in you so it's a question of knowing your own young person and yeah respecting what they want but always trying where possible to stay open to stay curious and if you're um, a parent of much younger children then actually having conversations about death and dying almost long before it happens just make it part of your daily like chats you know when you're out on walks Um, I was running yesterday and was crossing the road and accidentally almost trod on a very recently killed squirrel. Pretty scary. But if my children had been with me, we'd have used that as a conversation about how and why the squirrel died. So, you know, a car would have hit it. And, you know, unfortunately, it was bleeding and, you know, likely the, the squirrel died instantly but I would have had that sort of conversation and if you um, are wanting a really lovely show to show um, younger children if you can tolerate watching it because um, I know lots of parents find it quite annoying but Bing Bunny
0: oh I love Bing. really
1: nice really <laughs> nice episode about um it's called Butterfly where he accidentally kills a butterfly. But it's handled quite nicely in the way that we can't bring the butterfly back. It's it's dead, it's died. And so just trying to, you know, bring that into a child's awareness can be really useful. And then so that they've got a reference point, they've got something to hold on to, they understand it, you know. So um when you do spot that squirrel, you can say, oh, well, you know, it's like it's like being bunny's butterfly, you know, this squirrel has died, and the same with the same with the butterfly. So just don't try and shy away from frank conversations because what we know is that there's only really two sure things in life and that's that you'll be born and that you'll die, sometimes on the same day, which is really, really tragic. But, yeah, let's not shy away from those conversations. Let's just have them in an open way that that means that nothing's off the table. And, you know, when my dad died, I found it really useful to... so. How did he actually die mummy well he had something called cancer but it meant that ultimately at the end of the day um i probably wouldn't say the end of the day (laughs) because um but ultimately um his his heart stopped pumping blood to his brain and when that happens we die our bodies our bodies die our bodies are dead and literally that's kind of the end of that have you got any questions about that and you know one of the questions might well be well is this going to happen to me is this going to happen to you and again I don't shy away from that so that's yes, a scary maybe.
0: question isn't it like I I think a lot of parents they, they want to shield their children they don't want to upset them I can but then yes this is really important to have but I think a lot of people just automatically will try and go oh there, are there no don't worry let's go think of something let's go watch something nice because they don't want them yeah. to feel that pain but like you're saying it's really important that they start to understand from a young age that that this is going to happen just so that I suppose it's easier to accept that that's going to happen one day to yeah you, know, you don't get a shock when you're older of oh my god i'm actually going to die one day also do you think it might be that the parents don't want to think that their children will die one day and have to have those discussions like how do you answer that particular question of oh, am i going to die one day when when they're quite young
1: it's awful it's awful and it hurts my heart you know but i say maybe we all we all will die. It's one of the facts of life. But what I really hope for you is that you're going to die as an old man in your bed surrounded by the people who love you. You know, your grandchildren might be there, your or your husband might be there, you know, all of the people who love you and that you really love. I really hope are going to be there and that by the time that happens you've lived a really full active life you've done all those things that you tell me you want to do you've been you know a professional football player you've been you know a world leading youtuber because this is this is the level my kids are on right now Friends, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know you've done those wonderful things that you wanted to do and you've had a lovely life and that's what I hope for you um and then you know similarly they ask questions about when I'm gonna die and I say yeah that's that's what I hope for me too but don't worry because. I take good care of myself. I exercise, I eat well, I sleep well, um, and I really make sure that I look both ways when I'm crossing the road. So I'm not going to be taking extra risks. I'm doing everything I can to make my life as long as possible
0: so that I can really enjoy all of this time with you being really healthy and well. Mm, that's a good way of doing it not that i can say those things because i don't take care of myself but um maybe i can maybe that's an incentive to try to take care of myself and knowing that i have to have them conversations with him and i guess like you, you've you given us resources for younger ones like being who i absolutely love but sadly my son's way too old for that now so i don't get to watch it anymore But for sort of older ones, like I know I have a book that I used to read to my son when he was sort of key stage one of primary school. I can't remember. I'll have to put it in the show notes. Um, It's about a badger who passes and all of his friends saying goodbye and stuff. And I think it's a really good one for grief. But I guess for the older ones, sort of the preteens and the actual teenagers, are there any resources or ways it can be sort of brought up? Because I think it gets harder a lot of teens don't want to talk feelings in general you know you'll get caveman sort of grunts but to actually this is a serious subject and if they have lost someone how can you put it in your routine with an older child to have those conversations and should you do that weekly daily monthly like because they're a bit older I suppose they process it differently
1: I think, whatever the age of a child or a young person, as much as possible, it's important to try to make sure, and this is, you know, ideal standards, and I know this isn't always possible, but try to make sure that there's at least some protected minutes each day that are consistent, that are predictable. So for me and my kids, It's always, you know, in bed after stories. We'll have that protected time to discuss our day. It might not be the best order, you know, talking about sadness, talking about, but it works for us, you know. So it might not be for you. You might prefer to do it over breakfast or, you know, over dinner, but there's protected time where it's just me and them one to one, where we can just, you know, troubleshoot anything that feels like it might be, you know, ouchy, but also that feels like it might be stuff to celebrate you know best part of our day um and so that they know you know whatever's going on for them that they've got that time and like you said as they get older i haven't yet got teenagers but my nine-year-old at times <laughs> feels really quite teenagery at times um you know it's just n- n- them having that that awareness that there's always a safe place there's always whatever's going on in their day there's always going to be some time that they can have with you to help you make sense of their world and what what they're experiencing so I know it's a bit of a woolly question I can't bring any resources to mind for teenagers um, but I know for younger children there's a book called I think it's muddles puddles and sunshine maybe google it and add it to the show notes if I've got it slightly wrong but it's a bit of a workbook that you go through and that you can kind of go through with the child or the child can go through by themselves or you can do a bit of both Um, and it's a really lovely really lovely resource
0: yeah no I'll have a look at that I'll definitely put that in there and I guess the other side of it is so on a personal level obviously my two stepsons are teenagers um, and they unexpectedly lost their mum last year and we suspect divergence is there quite definitely <laughs> and it's been interesting in terms of the grief it's been After the first week, nothing, no talking about her, no emotions expressed. And we're like 18 months in now, I think, and not wanting to go to therapy for grief, some aggression at times, but we don't know. This is the other thing. You have hormones, teenage, you know, everything happens at that point. One was moving to secondary school just as it happened. You know, so it was quite a young teen. So you've got all these different things at play at the same time. And it's like, well, what's just average teenage stuff and what is possibly grief trying to push its way through that's being ignored? And I know you briefly said earlier that it can be quite common for for some children not to talk about it or just to randomly bring it up at times, but I guess 18 months of just not, unless we sometimes bring it up, but it's very quickly shut down. Is there a point where you start to worry that this isn't being dealt with at all? Or, Or actually, for neurodivergent people... Is it literally that object invisibility of, well, unless it's brought to me, I'm not literally going to even think about it. Is that kind of the norm for people with with these conditions? Um, I just wanted to know if you sort of have any experience of, of this sort of behaviour. Yeah, we're all different,
1: aren't we? So for me, anniversaries and dates and things are really important. They feel like I stand closer to a person or closer to an event on an anniversary but not everybody feels like that. Even as I speak to you now, my husband is working in a different part of the house, and he's got no clue about anniversaries, you know, unless I tell him. I mean, but he probably does know our he knows our wedding of anniversary, and he knows my birthday and stuff. But for him, it doesn't it doesn't hold any resonance, you know. It's just we have to allow others to be different and to have different viewpoints to us. But, it, you know, in terms of, I don't know you, I don't know you very well, I don't know your children, but, um, but in terms of, you know, their stability factors, it might be that not loads has changed since their birth mother died. Um, or it might be that they feel really super well supported in their relationship with their dad and with you. Sometimes we might, you know, worry that they're worried about upsetting us so they worry about bringing their grief to you. For example, if they saw you upset when she died, or if they saw dad upset when she died, then that can be something that they they want to avoid. They don't want to distress. They don't want to distress you. And so sometimes just bringing that on the table, it's okay. It's safe to be sad. It's safe for me to be sad. It's safe for daddy to be sad. It's not. It's not dangerous to be sad. And I can cope with that. You can bring your sadness to me and we can be sad together and that's okay. So yeah, make sure that people aren't overly protecting you so long as you're okay with being sad, of course, because what I find in work with people is that um, you might get more anger, you might get more anxiety, but people can be very reluctant to be sad or to really lean into sadness. And like you said, people we tend to distract people out of it we don't we feel quite uncomfortable with sadness and people often feel very uncomfortable with grief um so what i found in the aftermath of my dad's death um something that's spoken about quite a great deal in the grief collective book is that people you know it is the elephant in the room people just don't want to mention it um you know and i could visibly look awful you know it can look like i've literally just stopped crying and people will still go no, nice to see you. Um, you know, and not mention, you know, my dad mm. or, or you know, whoever you might be grieving for. Um and so sometimes just letting people know that you're okay with talking about the person that's died and that you like it when they do so my little boy still mentions Grandpa norm i love that he'll just spontaneously bring him up in conversation and one of my dad's best friends still mentions him to me all the time and i love a story i didn't know about my dad when people say you say something you know like, oh um and so yeah it's always i find still nice to hear their name and to hear things about them but like you said with object permanence and person permanence sometimes people find that tricky why would we still talk about them if they're not here in the present and so yes i'd say just reiterate and very much have a dialogue that it's safe to be sad but if someone isn't sad then that's okay too Because like we said, it might have been about the significance of that relationship. It might be about their peers having normalised that they've survived the loss of a parent or that their mum isn't really in their lives and they're okay. Every family and every grief situation is so individual, so unique. And so it's difficult to give a one size fits all approach to that. But I guess what you're suggesting is that it feels slightly atypical for you and it makes you feel that there might be some you know repressed buried grief that's that's going deep and yeah just stay open stay curious and look out for any yeah, like you said it's tricky when they start to go through puberty but just look for any indication that they might not be thriving that they might their well-being might be taking a hit um, or that they might start to be risky to themselves or others or that they're feeling like they've got lots of problems that don't really have any solutions or that they're not feeling like they've got much control of the situation or alternatively if you start to notice OCD symptoms that might be a sign that um, an adult or a young person is trying to find some control in their life and we do see that after grief sometimes especially if it's been quite sudden or traumatic or someone hasn't been able to feel like they had a sense of control at the time or if there's been an element of guilt or remorse so we have arguments with people all the time we have conflict but you know we can't have Hindsight. We can't have, we don't know what's going to happen. And so, if we've had an argument with someone and then they've died, we don't get a mm. chance to repair that rupture. Mm. And so, then someone might develop more OCD type symptoms as a way of trying to stop bad things happening to people in future. Does that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Like you said, I think definitely one in particular, it's a complete avoidance and not really happening. And I, Cause I just overshare all the time. I'm very blunt. I will often even just point blankly say, you know, if you thought about her recently, uh, give me a nice memory. Yeah, Christmas. What was what was the traditions you had with her? You know, what was your favorite things to do with her? It's very much shut down as soon as it's even, and not in an angry way, but just in a. I don't. You know, when you just think someone can't face something, and it's too much. It's too deep. And it was a very significant loss. And complete shock and I just I suppose I I have that fear of how long do you leave it until you know hang on now two years three years you haven't said a word and and there's clearly pain you know that must be there there's no way it can't like or or for some people to literally stop feeling anything and even that scares me that dissociation possibility and that I I just I worry like I suppose I guess a, a question is if people don't ever deal with their grief or let it come out in any way are there long-term consequences for that when they're adults?
1: I guess it can make us leakier in other areas. So it might mean that, yeah, we've got a shorter fuse. It might mean that um, we think about the window of tolerance in general, going about our everyday stuff. And, you know, when we've got a good window of tolerance, I like to think about as having a lot of jam in the sandwich. You know, you've got, more flexibility you've got you know a more breezy nature about you whereas when we're really struggling with something our window of tolerance shrinks right down and then what happens outside of the window of tolerance is we've got sorry to use technical terms we've got hyper arousal which is spelled with an e um, which is where you might feel anxious angry out of control overwhelmed and if we dip down outside of the window of tolerance we get hypo arousal which is where we might be feeling like freeze slot um, like dissociation and what we might find is that if somebody's grieving and not dealing with it or not dealing with any traumatic element to it that their window of tolerance shrinks so if for example you notice when you're talking to somebody and they weren't previously looking that tired um, but you're talking about something and they start to yawn that can be a sign of hypo arousal that they're actually starting to you know drop off fully mindful consciousness and so ways to do that would be to to combat that would be to wiggle your toes to to think about standing up from your seat rolling your shoulders taking some deep breath so that you can try and get back in a more comfortable window of tolerance. So, you know, if someone has been yawning throughout the day, then that might not be such an indication. But you'll know that sometimes if you're um, speaking with someone, and especially in your professional role, if you speak with someone and they suddenly start yawning, then it might be a sign that they're actually not coping so well with what you're talking about. So it can be a useful one to look for.
0: That's an interesting one. Because you, yeah, you usually associate just yawning with tiredness, boredom, but yeah, yeah, to know it could actually mean something completely different as well. Yeah. When you're and those
1: under people. under twenty under twenty five specifically, it can be a sign of anxiety as well. So it's definitely mm. one to look for. Say ordinarily that twenty five and beyond is when we've got our full brain capacity. We've got our full frontal lobes, and so it might be something to do with just the way that, that brain development hmm. means that we handle our emotions i don't i don't really know that we know the exact answer but certainly when i was working in cam services maybe i was worse at holding people in their window of tolerance at that time i don't know but you'd very much would see those yawns and that would be a sign to to back off or approach things differently or do things slightly differently so that can be a useful one to watch for if you are talking to under 25s
0: and are there any specific ways of dealing or, or, or trying to support someone with ADHD or autism that, like you said, can manage grief differently? Are there ways, like you're saying, with with neurotypical children, you will just keep bringing it up, and and obviously when they approach you, answering everything factually and you know things like that. But like I was saying, with things like yeah, people permanence isn't isn't a, is a massive thing for divergent people, but also I think. With autism, you get into routine and you have significant people. And when that person's no longer there and part of the routine, I do wonder, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I do wonder if it's it's a literal thing of I don't see them. They're not part of my usual weekly routine. They do not enter my brain. But subconsciously, there must still be grief there and pain that hasn't been processed. Is there ways of of helping people with those particular neurological conditions that might be different? From your average neurotypical child or teenager in particular, I guess
1: I guess what's really easy to do is to fall into the trap of thinking that we all have the same thoughts and feelings, and this might be more easily demonstrated when it comes to ASD. It might be more more um easy to understand with the concept of friendship. So, you know, if I didn't have friends, I'd be really sad. I love my friendships. I love different friends for different reasons. And I I love a gossip with people. I love chatting. I love sharing important memories and important experiences and planning and anticipating and, you know, meeting in busy coffee shops and in restaurants, but also doing things quieter as well. I love my friends But obviously, people with um, neurodivergence don't always feel the same about friends. They often just like their own company or might just like the company of one person. But us being sad for them about not having friends, you know, if you ask in parents evening, you know, how are they with their peers or they tend to spend all of their break times by themselves. We might as parents or as humans anyway, not parents, feel really moved. By that and be distressed by that and worried for them and what we're doing there is we're assuming that they feel the same way about friends that we do that when they're by when they're by themselves at break and lunch that they're longing for those friendships that might be so important to you but actually when we speak with the person they'll often say no I prefer this I'm all right with it I don't I don't see the value for friends you know They're confusing. They're overwhelming. And sometimes no amount of social stories are going to make that different. And sometimes we just have to respect that people are different. And that's okay. So, yeah, if if we're thinking about grief, we must be thinking, oh, they must have all these swirling, complicated thoughts. They must feel really sad. This must be some element of grief repression. It might not be. They might have dealt with it as well as they could at the time. And like this, they might be ready for chapters. They might be, you know, it might be that in future there is time to think about that. So if they go on to have their own children, for example, then they might be ready for thinking more about that. And they might need a little bit of support for how to think with granny, with their children. You know, the granny that they never met. I don't know if you have watched um, the Meghan and Harry stuff on Netflix. Um, But at one point they've got a picture of, of Diana on the wall um and uh, megan has got i think it's uh, one of the i think it might be Bet or it might be might be their son whose name escapes me on the wall archie isn't it they might, on, on the wall and she's talking with the child about grandma diana you know and it's knowing that actually we can keep the memory alive with the next generation um and having the confidence to do that but not like you know not being really forceful about that. And you know, you might have memories of the children's mother and you you might have got on with her really well as well. And sometimes it's okay to say, Oh, I was I was thinking about her today and I was remembering the time that we did this or that or maybe I haven't told you about this thing that we did before you were you know you probably didn't know her before they were born actually but you know what I mean like you might not know this about 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 your mum or you might not know this about me or she once said something that made me really laugh so we're not always dredging for their memories sometimes we can share our memories or you might drop in memories about your own mum you know I remember when I was a child I I did this with my mum and I only just remembered today to normalize the conversation about coming back to things years later
0: Mm, yeah no I try to do that with my own son with people we've lost as you know it's looking at oh he used to love doing this and I wish you'd have seen him do this yeah I'm keeping them when I can remember because myself with my own (laughs) ADHD and highly likely autism it's kind of like I forget as well and I think that's the other thing what I seem to notice is with a lot of divergent people that I'm I'm around and myself is we kind of I feel like we do deal with grief a bit differently and that I will grieve that loss for, for a bit and then it's almost like I forget for a bit and then something will remind me about that person and it's literally like I've only just heard it again for for the first time it's like they've died again, okay. um, which apparently is quite common And um, because I spend such a long time then just it's gone. It's out of my head. They're not. So I guess I don't process it in that long term way of constantly getting to a point. But then it hits me. I could be driving the car and one of their songs come on and I'm like, oh, my God, they're not here. And it's all that wave again of they've gone. So I kind of I worry that, yeah how how we manage that because it is a little bit different I think obviously I don't know I haven't been in neurotypical brain to, to compare it but from what I hear that that's quite different to, to other people and I guess I also have heard of something called complicated grief which I assume is the thing you were referring to earlier about complex grief mm-hmm. and it's sort of it, like where people get frozen in it and, and I sort of wondered what are the signs that a young person might be stuck in their grief and we need to kind of go and get some help what what would we I think you know you said before that OCD I don't know if that gets out of hand or what what do we need to sort of look at to go hang on we we're not enough for this person at the moment we need to go and get a professional to chat with them or or give them a safe space to to really get this out
1: yeah so if they're tearful a lot of the time or if they're not able to do the things that you'd expect them to do like showering or you know if they previously have been good at going for play dates or meeting up with their friends in town and they're not wanting to do that it's just it's knowing your child and observing the things that are different so we look for negative symptoms which is where things have detracted from your life so it might be a lack of social care it might be social grooming um, it might be the lack of interaction or the addition, the positive side effects, which might be um, or symptoms. It might be more control. It might be fastidious cleaning. It might be um, more tears. You know, so we're looking at those things that would take us outside of what would be largely, you know, normal limits for behaviour. And yeah, anything that's risky, so if they are a risk to themselves or others, so for example, if they want to, if they start thinking about life not worth being living, or um, wanting to hurt themselves, having plans to hurt themselves, then that is a, a serious concern. And at that point, you'd need to contact the GP or um, take them to A&E. So A&E is, um, at the moment, it's not a good place to be, is it? But generally speaking we think about aE as a place of safety if you can't keep yourself or someone else safe it's not just if you've got a leg hanging off um, it's a place of helping safeguard somebody even if it's mental health not just physical health so if you are imminently concerned about the mental health well-being or safety of somebody that is something that you can consider accessing aE but this again, right now when there's you know millions of hours of yeah. waiting list, that might it's not be you know, something you consider but um definitely you'd contact um you know one. which what number it's is 111, 111 isn't it 111. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I get 111 and 101 mixed yeah, up yeah that's the police uh, one isn't it yeah, police, yeah, do yeah. The same. Um, but yeah you can contact your gp and um you know know that that suffering doesn't need to Endure. You know, mm-hmm. you don't deserve to suffer. You deserve to have a life that is rich and rewarding and enjoyable. And yeah, like I said, with trauma, when you've got stuff leaking in from previously mm-hmm. to now, um, that might be a sign of trauma. And when we, when we've processed trauma, so like you said, very accurately, we can't. Necessarily take away all sadness. You know, we can't. So even when we're processing trauma um, and grief, when it comes to grief, we don't necessarily expect expect the distress to drop to zero because, of course, somebody has died, and it's okay to it's okay to still feel sad and a bit distressed about that. But we don't want it to feel so massively spiky that it feels overwhelming and terrifying and unmanageable. Um, we need it to. Sort of assimilate into, into life, really, and a sense that that has happened is when people are feeling like, oh, so my, my dad died in twenty seventeen, so it's it's been you know a number of years now. It does now feel like it. Whereas when I was struggling with it more before I had what's called EMDR, it felt really present. It felt like it's happening now. And what we notice when we've done trauma work with people is that they will say oh yeah it does it does feel like that was five years ago now actually was when I started this session it it still felt like it was happening now so what trauma work does is it helps file things away in the right filing cabinet drawer so that they're not leaping out Mm. all the time um, just to help tidy up and kind of bump off the the rough edges
0: Yeah. And I think any grief, any loss of people, it can be traumatic, but when it's a significant person to you and it's happened with completely zero warning, I think that adds another level of trauma. And I suppose I wonder, is that a time where it's more likely you do need some sort of professional help to kind of, it's it's not just the grief you're dealing with, it's the traumatic way it happened or you know if you like you said if you've witnessed it or you didn't but you're concocting what it could have looked like a suicide is a huge one um losing someone you love to that when you don't know that's going to happen and that constant question of why and could I have helped that and, and blaming yourself I suppose if if you have a child or a young person with you that you're getting worried like you've you've listed some of those things and you're thinking they're not getting through this they're not getting to that point they're not talking about it we're seeing other behaviors that are really concerning us we want them to get some help but they refuse therapy i'm aware of someone i know who who's put the you know got their child on that waiting list got them actual you know bereavement therapy and the first session the lady says so are you happy to do this no so then the, the lady's like well i won't do it then and after all that and i was a bit surprised i thought well hang on no one's going to be happy to do this no one's going to want To put even an adult's not going to want to open this because it hurts. Um, I was a bit, I thought, well, yeah, I thought you'd have tried to (laughs) to get. I don't know, I'm not a therapist, but I was a bit like, well, it's scary. A child sitting there is going to think, I really don't want to do this. Um, I don't want to open this because this is going to really hurt. And I thought that would be normal, that would be what everyone would think, and that you would sort of try and find a way of easing them into the session. But I guess if you've got a child that's like, I don't want to do therapy, I'm not going to talk to that person. But they clearly need it. Like, is there a way of explaining to them, or talking to them, or working with them yourself to get them to understand the importance of it? Or do you just leave it? Like, what, what would your advice be in that scenario? So, if someone is a risk to themselves or others, then
1: of course there is a, an ethical, moral, legal responsibility to to make sure that we're safeguarding somebody. I think we do need to thicken the narrative that it's safe to be sad. Absolutely
0: yeah because we do we, we we are a society that we just want to make people feel happy as soon as they start to show a bit of that isn't it it's that oh quickly soothe yeah. it away no no you're fine let's go do something nice and sit with sadness you know and how would you elect- do that with a teenager like I know you, I would play bing bunny I would talk about it with my young young ones but like when they're you better get word out of them and you're trying to <laughs> sit with them like, like what can you do regularly with them that's going to start to slowly change their perceptive perception of sadness and naturally I can be sad. Is it like you said, is it showing your own sadness? are there other things that I might not have thought of that they could that we could do? I think it's being a bit more
1: directive sometimes. so I was upset. my dad was a biker, didn't die on his bike which had been a fear of mine all through my life, actually, that he would and ultimately didn't. So that was all wasted anxiety, wasn't it? But he was a vintage motorbiker. And so he's not now with us, And but his leathers still are. And his helmet. And I spotted them when I was at my mum's house. And I became really sad. I was like, oh, they were all covered in dust. Like, they wouldn't have been covered in dust if dad was here. And so I was tearful. And I went in to see my mum. Um, It was her, her house, so I'd seen them. And she just... Went, oh, something about this bottle of water that she had on the table, and I went, Mum, what you done? What you done that for? And she said, Oh, I thought you might want distracting, and I was like, No, it's okay. It's okay. You know, (laughs) it's okay Mm -hmm. to be sad. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't need to distract me. And so sometimes just watching what people do, people might be trying to distract you, people might be trying to distract themselves, Mm -hmm. but just holding that asserting yourself and just saying it's okay I know that was painful or you know it looked like that might have been a bit painful but it looked like you maybe tried to distract yourself but it's okay and even when I've been in mental health services and overheard people who are staffing crisis lines sometimes they say well what you need to do is you need to go and distract yourself uh, Mm. what we need to do is we need to learn to tolerate things that might feel distressing we need to even just in a small window just tolerate Mm. just with a few breaths in and out thinking about something that feels a bit ouchy without distracting ourselves and once we've done that then we can push it out of our brain or do something more to distract ourselves but we need to be over time Increasing our tolerance to think about things that do feel uncomfortable is part of the acceptance and control, and us having the control rather than it
0: controlling us. Hmm. there's quite,
1: it's quite a lot of ground we've covered in this podcast. Yeah, no, yet. that
0: makes a lot of sense though, because I think, like you said, instantly, even when a parent is sad, we instantly think must hide that from child. Don't want to distress them, showing us them our sadness. So. But no, we should probably show them sometimes. And if they ask, it's all right, I'm just having a bit, a little bit of a sad moment. I'm just, you know, I have just remembered my mum or, you know, I'm just having a bad day and I just want to get it out. So I'm just having a little cry and, and but that, making it that acceptable. That sadness
1: in that example isn't always like horror is it mm. Mm. sometimes the sad sadness is almost nostalgia like you might remember a really nice yes. thing and you're remembering and enjoying that memory mm. but you're sad they're not here anymore so I've definitely sat with tears mm. streaming down my face and just I'm just I'm just sad about Grandpa. you know I really loved
0: him Making um, it normal showing it yeah. that's fine to have a little cry and then we get on with the rest of our day we don't try yeah. and block it from coming in no so that's I think that's something yeah I need to do more of that and And be mindful of that, especially with males. I want boys to know it's okay to cry because of the stigma around male crying is just still ridiculous. I guess my last question is a common one that a lot of parents worry about when they've lost that person, whether to let them go to the funeral. Is there things they should think about when they're trying to make that decision?
1: Okay, I'll perhaps take you through my decision making process around this. So like I said, my children were really young four and 18 months and it was happening in my parents' village. Um, so we had a cremation somewhere else and then we had a, a like a, a memorial service, which was kind of the main funeral really, um, all on the same day and then awake in the pub. But what I knew about the pub was that it backs onto a park. That the kids are used to being in as well and what i knew is that my children were much more likely to want to be in the park than in the wake and actually for me the function of that service and the wake was to be really sad you know really out there sad you know i did the eulogy and had tears streaming down my face which i didn't mean to do i'd like i'd, I'd nailed it in the prep And then the vicar said something just before I went on that really upset me. But that's safe to be sad. And I, you know, I got through it whilst crying and it was quite long. uh, But I did it. But for me, I wanted to not be worrying about nappy changes. I wanted to not worry about, you know, who was with the children. So for me, I decided not to have them there. So my eldest went to school and my youngest went to childcare like usual, because that was I wanted to be able to spend half an hour talking to my dad's cousin who, you know, I've never met, or, Mm. you know, people that he used to play with when he was little, who'd come to the service. You know, there's two hundred people in the church and they would they loved Mm. him. And like you said, they didn't have
0: the connection because they were so so young. They wouldn't like you said, they don't even remember him now. So I guess for you, your your grief was the most important there, wasn't it? But I guess if they're older and they did have you know it was their parent or their sibling I guess that's where it's like is it going to be more traumatic or is it going to be less to sort of let them have that closure there or will it be really distressing to see the coffin you know do you have chats with the child about yeah I mean I always do that like this is how a funeral looks this is what would happen how do you feel about being in that situation is that something that would be okay to do
1: yeah and perhaps normalizing that you know you might you might see me being really upset but that's OK. And to know that whilst it might be, so I think about my dad's funeral as one of the most difficult, but one of the most powerfully important days of my life. And I wouldn't have wanted to have missed it. So even though it was very difficult, I was very pleased to have been there. Um, and yeah, just to kind of normalise that really. So it might feel like a really tricky day there might be bits that feel more painful but how would you want to be part of this would you want to say something you know either something about them or would you want to do a poem or would you want to not say anything at all and not have anyone ask you even how you are you know because if they ask me how I am I'm gonna I'm gonna cry but know that actually you might see me crying and that's okay and you're able to cry too or if that doesn't feel okay for you you can do whatever you need to do but I'm always a crier I i cry at tv funerals as well like (laughs) i like it i love a good cry i find it really really cleansing and you know Mm. i like being connected to people and when we feel deeply we're gonna feel Mm. deeply all the time i think but just know your young person ask questions if they really really wanted to go so when i was six my grandfather died my dad's dad and i almost think that i was treated too much of an adult. So. I, I was I asked if it was possible to see Grampy, you know, once he'd died because I wasn't with him. And the answer was yes, it is. Mm. And so I was taken to see him. And yet that's now really the only way I can remember him, eating right, his coffee. Yeah.
0: Because that's the other thing, isn't it? I suppose a teenager that's lost their parent, they might be asked, Do you want to see them? Yeah, even that I wouldn't know.
1: Ooh. You can be led by them. But mm. actually at the age of six. I that's
0: don't too young. know. Yeah. yeah,
1: I feel like it wasn't really needed. They perhaps could have said it is, but when we're little, that's not always the best thing to do. And why don't we sit down and talk about Grumpy and look at photos of him yeah. instead? And I think that would have been okay. And I went to the funeral, I think, more because it was felt like I should, but it was very sad, mm. and I don't know that I needed to be there.
0: No, so yeah, so, yeah No,
1: know, know your child know yeah. that you don't need to have the should so people said oh where are the kids today I so I decided not to bring them I just, it's not really about them it's about me and mm. everybody else you know and that's yeah. okay I don't so, think yeah. the kids are bothered at all but...
0: and I think yeah like you said if they're a bit older it's a significant one to them really go through what the process would look like do they want to even choose the music Do they might want to do something little but not go up on stage and talk but they might want to pick I knew that was their favorite song can we have that one in there and I suppose as well, always knowing if it gets too hard, you can leave and I'll come with you. Or some certain person, this is where the doctor will be. I think that because you always think, well, if I can't get out and it's really distressing, it's knowing you, you can leave, I think might actually ease the, the anxiety. But yeah, no, thank you. It's, it, like you said, you know your child, but some people are scared of them seeing that. But it can be helpful in the grief process to do that and to hear everyone talk about them so lovely. But for people that want to know more about what you do and or get your book, which is The Grief Collective. So that's good. It sounds like it's real, really helpful for this line of topic. Where can they find you and your book?
1: So I'm on all of the socials, Dr. Marianne Trent. So do come and follow and connect with me there. And the book you can access from my website, goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk, But also it's on Amazon. So you can get it from there oh, as well. That's nice amazing. So I'll
0: put the links to them down below then. Thank you so so much. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you again. Bye. If you've liked this episode, please help us out by liking, subscribing, or leaving us a review as this helps us to reach more people. If you've got any ideas about topics to cover on future episodes or questions about the pod, or you even want to be interviewed for it, please get in touch on our socials using at mindvoxpod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, or email us on mindvoxpod at gmail.com.